Thanks for listening to one of our messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. in person and online. To find out more about our church or to connect to any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you seek to follow Jesus. moment for me. Um, kind of embrace the awkward with both arms, you know. Uh, welcome to CBC, everybody. My name's Charlie. If we haven't met, I'm the senior pastor. I'd love to meet you. If you're online, you can email me. If you're in person, come say hi after the service. We are in Matthew 10. We're going to continue our series. We're going to pick up in verse 32 this morning. But before we do that, we do this every week. We talk about how our consumer culture leads to a critical culture outside of these walls in the world that we live in. And what God calls us to do when we come together is to ask where he's moving and how he's speaking to us because God is real and he is near. That's what we know. So a phrase that I like to use is the move of the spirit is inward to conviction, not outward to critique. We show up this morning putting aside how we act in the world out there, how the world wants us to act is a better way to say it. And acknowledge that Jesus wants us to act differently. Acknowledge that in this space, he's speaking to us. And so we're just going to take a minute and pray. I'm going to pray for us collectively that we hear the spirit this morning. I'm going to give you some space just to say a a quick prayer to yourself and ask the spirit to move uh, so that we might engage with the living God today. Pray with me. God, I'm thankful to be here. Of all the places we could be, I'm thankful that we make time to acknowledge your worthiness. Holy Spirit, This morning, make your presence known to us. As you indwell the lives of Jesus' followers, enlighten the text to what we need to see about the goodness of God today. Convict us where we need conviction and give us joy where we need joy. I'd ask you to just take a a couple seconds if you're comfortable and say a quick prayer and ask the, the Spirit this morning to speak to your spirit. I see you pray for me, that God might use my preparation and move beyond just a man and a message, but into something that rolls up into how we appreciate the gospel this morning, how we see Jesus, and it might encourage us as we go forward in a world that doesn't love Jesus as much as we do. Pray these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said. Amen. Matthew 10, we're going to pick it up in verse 32, but something happened this week that was a first for me. Yesterday was my first official game as a three-year-old soccer coach, all right? That's right. We have eight weeks in this season. You'll be getting weekly updates, everybody, all right? You got a fantasy poll going? No. Um, And guess what? The score at the end of the game was 15 to two-ish. That's right. We lost. Yeah, we absolutely got, got killed. I mean, at one point, my daughter's laying on the sidelines, and there's one of the girls who was at the other team's goal, and every time they scored on us, she applauded for them. Well, she's supposed to be playing for us. There was literally one point in the second half when we need four girls to play in the field, and two just walked off crying for some reason. And, and I said, I need somebody else to play. Does anybody want to play? And they just go, No. <laughs> One of the two goals that we scored, the other team scored for us. Thank you, grace of God moment, all right? On the way home, I looked at my wife and I said, I just don't know if I'm a very good soccer coach. And 
I said, I said, I think I might be a bad soccer coach. And my daughter from the back seat yells, dad, you're a bad soccer coach. <laughs> That's right. I looked at her in the eye and said, I'm only as good as the players I have on the field. I'm kidding. I did not, I did not do that. I waited until we got home so she would actually hear it. Um, no. But really, though, in that moment, when, I, when I'm coming to this story, is that moment was just filled with me with, I don't know what to do. I don't know what I can do. It felt, in some ways, a little bit hopeless, and I felt all the ways inadequate. And I think that feeling of inadequacy, wherever you find it, whether it's your debut at a coaching of a three-year-old soccer match, or whether it's at home or in your work, I think that feeling of inadequacy has grown in the last couple of years. I've talked to so many parents, so many parents, that just don't know how to be a good parent in the current climate and culture, with schools on and off, and all the guidelines on safety and not safety, with all the judgment from everybody else. Being a parent's hard enough anyway. We always compare one another to one another. We didn't need the last couple of years. I've talked to so many people who don't go into the office anymore, and they're trying to figure out, am I still good at what I do? I think this wave of this feeling of inadequacy in our culture has simply grown. And I think you, you can't distance what we feel in our culture and our faith. I wonder if at the same time we're saying, am I worthy of, am I good enough for, am I inadequate in my job or my family or my coaching ability? If sometimes we say the same thing about our faith. I had a bad day yesterday. Am I really good enough for God? I had a bad month last month. I've been a bad husband, a bad father. I fall into sin and I can't seem to get over it. Join Paul and read Romans 7 Am I worthy of really following God in the first place? Today's text, in the middle of this text about persecution, is all about the worthiness of disciples. But what we do when we don't feel like we're worthy enough for Jesus. Because those feelings of inadequacy are hard. <laughs> they hit us right in the feels. And they make us question fundamentally who we are. And so Jesus starts by saying this in verse 32. After he just said, I love you more than anything else, he says... Whoever then acknowledges me before people, I will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before people, I will deny also before my Father in heaven. And what he's doing after he has this beautiful section on how much you're loved, which we hit last week, in the middle of suffering and persecution, which really goes into, you trust me because I love you more than anybody else does, and trust that because I'm more powerful and my perspective is greater. He says, now here's the mutuality, the, the, the nature of our relationship, that I'm going to acknowledge you, but I need you to acknowledge me in public. And one of the things we talked about was the cost of suffering oftentimes is silence because people get quiet about their faith. But we have to culturally, and I think the way God made us, there's power in public declarations of things. There's power in public proclamation. There's power in saying words out loud. It's why we believe you have to still do things like get down on one knee and ask out loud to get engaged or get married in front of a group of people. It's why we do parent dedications at CBC. It's why we still do baptisms. Baptisms don't save you. It shows people what did save you in the first place. There's power in public declarations. It's why we say often it's important to pray and pray out loud. Even though God knows what you're saying and what you're feeling and what you're needing, something in us changes when we're forced to speak it out loud. It's how God made us. Read James on the power of the tongue to shape us and form us and teach us what true really is. And so there's power in public declaration. Romans 10 puts it like this. For it's with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it's with your mouth that you profess faith and are saved. We need both of these natures. Here's where I think we have to check our passage. 
I grew up in the, the, the golden age of guilt gospel in the mid-90s. I don't know if you guys know what that was, but the goal of I feel like most youth group gatherings I went to, all three, was to make you feel bad enough so you do something, right? And, and look, their motives were great, by the way. Like, they just wanted to see people saved. I appreciate that. But if our gospel stops at guilt, it's not the full picture of what the gospel was. And so we read passages like this, and we say, have you acknowledged Jesus in all of your ways? And if you haven't, here it is. Are you really saved? If you were to die tonight. No, that, that, that usually follows next. The problem with that is I, I don't see that as being the rhythm of Jesus in talking to his followers. I don't see guilt as the end of the gospel, rather a tool to point us to the grace and goodness of God. Lasting faith doesn't stop at guilt. It uses guilt to get to grace and goodness, period. And so what we see in the scriptures as we read this verse in context is not a litmus check on whether or not we're in or out, not a litmus check on our salvation status, but rather Jesus saying over time, I want people that acknowledge me because they know me because they trust me. Look at Peter, 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 one of the closest disciples of Jesus. You probably know the story, John 21. He denies Jesus three times when, when you could say Jesus needed him the most. And Jesus didn't run away. Jesus didn't say, you're not my disciple anymore. Jesus didn't say, you need to do better before you follow me. He simply showed up and said, love. Do you love me? Okay, then show others. Do you love me? Okay, then love the people that love me. Three times, just like Jesus. Peter denied Jesus three times. I think what's happening in this text at the very beginning, is he's going to start and he's going to ask, you're not, he's going to say, you're not worthy of me three or four different times in this text. But he starts by saying, I want people that simply acknowledge our relationship over time. I, before COVID was in this pastor's group, and I got into it at a really interesting time. Uh, Steve before me was in it, and it's about 15 or so pastors from across the DFW Metroplex, and some with, you know, smaller churches and some of the most well-known pastors in the area. And uh, one time there was, there was two big name pastors in the area that, that were retiring, and it just kind of happened that I stepped in and Steve was, was leaving as well at the same time. So it was a really interesting time in the group. And we had a whole conversation one time. These guys having pastored for 30 and 40 years on what success looks like in ministry. It's like the size of Sunday morning. Is your views online? Is it your budget? Is it your baptisms? Is it your salvation? And man by man, these people that had ministered for decades looked at us, the younger people, and said, success is faithfulness to your people and places. I think what this text gets to is simply Jesus saying, over time, people need to know that you know me. And that's the question we ask from it. Not necessarily, how did you do yesterday? You're in, you're out. But over time, do people that know you know that you know Jesus? I think he's saying, if you really trust me, they should, and they will. It's the beginning of this conversation on what it is to be worthy of Jesus in the first place. We start by acknowledging him. And he continues, and he says... Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. It gets into some dicey homiletical interpretation waters here in the next couple of verses. If you read this version of it, there's a version in Luke as well, where Luke's going to say, hey, if you don't hate your mom and dad, then you can't love me, right? This is really hard to interpret. Because especially in this world and in ours, the family unit is really critical. And so he starts by saying, don't think that I've come to bring peace on earth, but not peace, but a sword. And if you're a Jewish kid in the first century, if you're us now, you're going to go to Luke 2 and be like, hold on a second. I thought you came when you first came to bring peace on those in whom your favor rests, right? The Bible story with the angels and the shepherds and all the things and the stable and Mary. 
And this narrative, especially in this first century Jewish culture, is that Jesus came to bring peace. That's why he's called the Prince of, there it is, peace. But what he's doing here and what we have to acknowledge are the different kinds of peace in the world. So often, so often our experience with God is shaped and formed by our expectations of God. Do we start with our expectations of God or with his of us? And so Jesus says, I have not come to bring peace on earth. I will answer by saying yes and no. In the first century world, the Jewish people thought that Jesus was going to come and bring military peace by reestablishing their authority in the world at the top of the food chart. It's the throne of David. They're going to be in charge. It's going to be glorious. They won't have to fight for their existence anymore. Rome won't be their oppressors. They will oppress Rome. They had this idea that Jesus was going to bring military peace to the world. It goes into kind of how we see and define peace. So, so to most of us, peace is the absence of conflict. To me, peace is that moment at like 1049 when we put our kids to bed at 730 and they finally fall asleep and nobody's yelling at me anymore in my house. You know, it's peace. It's the lack of conflict. But, but when Jesus talks about peace, it's a little different. It's funny, I think in the history, last 3,500 years, I was reading this week, there was a Times article, that there's been peace for about 200 of those years, about 8%. Thomas Jefferson has a fun quote. He says, peace is that glorious moment in history when everyone stops to reload, <laughs> you know? <laughs> He's not wrong. <laughs> I think when we think about peace, we think about this kind of peace. When Jesus talks about peace, for the most part, outside of this quote, he talks about a different kind of peace. And what he's saying in this moment is, I didn't come to bring the peace that you think I'm going to bring. And in the Beatitudes, he talks through peace and he says, you probably know it in verse 9 of chapter 5, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And, and what it does, and when he says in the verses above this in chapter 10, like, you're going to bring my peace to people. Peace is not just the absence of conflict. Peace is the insertion of God's goodness in good ways to the world that needs it, that has been disrupted by sin. It's the shalom of God in the Hebrew wording. It's a concept. My favorite definition of peace is shalom is the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight. That's God's peace. My favorite definition of sin plays off that. Sin is the culpable disturbance of God's shalom. And so when Jesus comes into the scene in this world that's been broken by sin, he has to break sin to bring back peace. And so he's challenging their idea of peace and saying, I'm not going to bring the kind of peace that you see because I have to create it because it has been overtaken. That's why we get tests like Colossians 1. God was pleased to have all the fullness dwell in the Son, to reconcile all things to himself by making peace through the blood of the cross. This idea that we need to pursue the peace in our world. There's a philosopher and Presbyterian minister a while ago, and he said about going against the ways of God, he said, when you go against the grain of the universe, you get splinters. And I'm H.H. Farmer. It's one of my favorite quotes. I think that works the same way when you go against the grain of culture. You get cultural splinters. In Jesus' day, it looked a lot like persecution. In this day that we're reading about, it looked a lot like persecution. Jesus was going to die for the ways that he said to live. 
that pushed back against power and celebrated meekness and said, you're going to love all the people, not just the ones that love you. And you're not going to worship Nero. Or you're not going to worship the emperor. You're going to worship only God. That's kind of a big deal. I mean, Jesus pushed back on the power structure in place in the first century. And because he did, he lived against the grain of the Roman culture and world. He got pushback. I think in some ways we see similar, but not the same ways of pushback in our world. Here in America, we are blessed to be in a place that, that somewhat celebrates faith. There's a, a bunch written on it, but about the time of the scientific revolution in the 18th century, you saw the split between faith and science, between religion and what we can prove and know to be true. And it's one of my favorite things to study, but basically what it did was said that now society's taken a place where you can have science that's true and good and right, and you can have faith, but then you're not really into science, right? I don't know how many times I've heard people say, I don't have faith, I believe in X, Y, and Z. And here's the deal. I, I don't think our persecution or the splinters we get from pushing back against our culture necessarily is you're going to get punched in the face, although it might not be too far off. I think people are going to look at us by the ways we think and judge us for it. I think one of the ways that our culture does it is it pushes back against faith as a second-tier way of thinking. I think, too, just to give a real right-now example, we know our, our, our culture is really, really big into cancel culture at the moment. I think there's nothing in the gospel that supports cancel culture. I think if you don't jump on board and cancel everybody that did something wrong, then you love what they did wrong, and that's just not true. The gospel is all about redemption, consequences, but redemption so as followers of Jesus, we push back hard against a culture that says you cannot be redeemed. We push back hard against a culture that says you're defined by your worst moment. We push back hard against a culture that says that you are the worst thing you did and nothing can stop people from seeing you that way. I think our gospel pushes against a culture that doesn't value our gospel. And so what we have in this moment is Jesus saying, I didn't come to bring the peace that you thought I would bring. Instead, I came to bring a sword. The sword there is a double-edged sword. It's a Roman tool that could kill you pretty quickly on both sides. I think a really great analogy of this is Jesus saying, I want deeper, richer peace for you than the peace that you know. I don't know if you've ever been to any kind of counseling situation, marriage counseling or personal counseling. But let me tell you something. You're going to go into counseling trying to make your life happier, healthier, and whole. And for a little while, it's going to feel like it's not doing that. For a little while, it's going to feel like it's making life worse because you've got to go in and undo what you did to get to the place that you're at, you know? This idea that if you want the deeper and richer and fuller version of life in peace, we have to fight the sin that led us to where we're at right now. Jesus said, I didn't come to bring the peace that you're thinking about. I came to kill it so that you could have a deeper peace. And, and so he says, this is what worthy discipleship is. He says, we're going to start by acknowledging me, and then we're going to acknowledge what following me does. It pushes back against a culture that fights me in the ways of Jesus. And then he gets personal. Read the next verse. He says, for I have come to set man against his father, daughter against his mother, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his households. I've seen this used to justify division within families, and that's terrible, because here's one thing I know from the scriptures. God loves families. 
Here's one thing I know from the scriptures. God created the family unit. God made the family unit the way to pass down faith from generation to generation. Family was his idea, and he made it for your personal flourishing. I know that from the Old Testament and the New Testament. Read Ephesians 5 or Galatians 6 and look at the radical ways that Jesus says to create family in a culture that didn't value the family like he values family. When we serve one another and we aren't served by one another, it's not the chief end or main goal. I know that God has always valued families by saying the the, the Ten Commandment, honor your father and mother, is the only one with a promise on it. And your life will be longer, subtext, because they won't kill you, you know? I have a three-year-old. I think about that often. (laughs) But it's this idea that we have to know that God created family and passed it down. So you can't read this verse and justify division, fighting, or any kind of malice or anger you have in your heart for family. You can't do that. One of my soft plug favorite podcasts is a podcast by a buddy of mine named Family Discipleship. He just talks about how we use the family to bring about discipleship in our families, in our kids, in our marriages. It's, it's really, really fantastic. It expresses God's vision and value for family. So then, if Jesus doesn't actually believe that we're supposed to, in Luke it says you're going to hate these people, why does he use this language? A couple reasons. One, uh, in your journey with Jesus at this point, the disciples, you know, we, we tend to look at Jesus and we tend to think about all the things we already know and apply them to Jesus at this moment. Like we know Jesus was resurrected. We know he was good. We know he did all these things. We know all the parables he says. We know all the times he went and, and healed people. And then we interpret that into this moment with his disciples. The problem is the disciples learned over time the reality of Jesus. They first started following him and they thought he was just a great teacher. And he was. But then over time, they learned he was way, way more. At, at this point, what, he start, what Jesus is starting to do, and it's going to pick up in chapter 12, what Jesus is starting to do is reveal to his people that he's more than just a teacher, but he has all this messianic expectation on his life. He's going to say, you know all these phrases about like the Savior coming? Look at me. The Talmud is a Jewish document. It's a bunch of... Uh, teachings on the law from the 2nd to 5th century BCE, and it's, 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 it's right next to the law to a Jewish person. You study them, and you critique them, and you memorize the Talmud. The Talmud in it has a phrase that says, a feud between members of the family is also mentioned as a sign of the coming messianic age. Jesus knew full well that they all believed that if there was fighting in families, they would think that the Savior is coming. It's talked about in Micah 7. For a son dishonors his father, a daughter rises up against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. This is what Jesus is quoting. A man's enemies are the members of his own household. And then verse 7, but as for me, I watch and hope for the Lord. I wait for God, my Savior. My God will hear me. Jesus is saying in this moment, I am God showing up. He's playing into their expectations saying, you've heard it said this. Here I am. It's going to start to happen. So one, he values families. Two, he's, he's talking about his messianic expectations and using this phraseology. And three, I think you have to understand it's, a, it's an idiom that they used to use saying that basically you're going to love me so much more than everything else is going to look like you don't like other things, you know? Uh, there's a writer who talks about, um, you see it in the Old Testament quite a bit. A great example is Jacob and his two wives, Leah and Rebecca. There's a phrase in Genesis 29 when it says that God looked and saw that Rebecca wasn't loved. And, and that's kind of what it is here. Compared to, or Leah wasn't loved. Compared to Rebecca, Leah felt like she wasn't loved in her marriage at all. And what Jesus is saying, he's saying, compared to me, I will bring division inside your own family. 
I'll bring division to the ones that you think you love the most. Here's the hard about that. It's so often we think that he's going to bring division because we're supposed to not love our families. That's a wrong way to interpret this. I think a right way to interpret it is to say, we love Jesus so much more, and then here's the second half of that. If we believe that Jesus loves our families more than we do, then it's a good thing to love Jesus more than we love our families. If I believe Jesus loves my kid more than I love my kid, then I'm going to love Jesus more than I love my kid because that will increase, that will increase my, my affection for my family. The idea that our allegiance to God should always increase our affection for our family because he made them in their good is a principle in the scriptures. And so he's saying compared to all these people that you know and know well, that you love and love well, if it's between me and them, I win because I'm better. And what we have to do is hear this phrase in a first century context because we live in a very individualized context and community. They lived in a very collective context and community, and it changed how they saw this text. It's not just about aggression or non-aggression for family. There's a, a German man in the late 70s, got rewritten in, in the early 90s, but basically we had no way to compare different cultures. And so a guy named Gert Hofsted wrote a book and, and came up with something called The Five Dimensions of Culture. And it's used all over the world now, especially in mission contexts. But what he does is he takes these different dynamics and then you rank the country on the scale so you know how to compare it to. His five are power distance, uncertainty avoidance, individualism versus collectivism, masculinity versus femininity, and time avoidance. America leads the world in individualism. We're the most individualized country on the planet, and that changes how we read these texts. There's a book that I really like called Misunderstanding Scripture with Western Eyes, and, and it talks through one of the chapters is on individualism versus collectivism, and built into, baked into the way that we talk about Jesus is radical individualism. So for example, that, that, that hymn, I've decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, you know what? I'm not going to sing it, don't wait. But it's, I have decided to follow Jesus. A line in that hymn, if you keep going, is though no one go with me, I still follow. Like we celebrate the individualism of our faith. And there is a component to that. But we're so individualized that you even have to understand that the collective pursuits we have as a society are still sold through individual metrics. Team sports, we still keep individual stats and celebrate those. In the book, they talk about the fact that one of the most collective means we have in our country is join the army and be part of something bigger. But what's a couple of the slogans for joining the army in the last 20 or 30 years? Be all that you can be, right? <laughs> or an army of one. So join this collective thing, but also you're an individual, be awesome. In the first century world, that was not what they celebrated. What we call a virtue, they would call a vice. There's a phrase that said in Jewish cultures that the tallest blade of grass gets cut first. Your, your goal wasn't to get out of. Your goal wasn't to get ahead of or to stand out. It was to support the structure that's already there. And, and you see it in scripture. Acts 16 is a great example. There's a couple different uh, stories in Acts 16 about Paul saving people through the power of Jesus, like the jailer. And then he said, and your whole household's going to come to faith. Lydia is a great example at the end of chapter 16 where she finally decided that she was going to trust in Jesus and it says, and her whole household came to faith. God saves people so that he can save families. We even 
know it's true and how we say our names. So we have first, middle, and last names, the tripartite name because of the Romans, Romans first century. And when we say names, you know what it is. It's Charlie if you like me, it's Charlie Ridenauer if you're a little serious, and it's Charlie Robert Ridenauer if you're my mother and I'm in trouble, right? We all know how that goes. Last night, we had some friends over, good, 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 good friends. I'm godparents to their kids, good friends. We've known them for a long time. My daughter's known them for a long, long time. And that morning, we said, hey, this family's coming over, and we used their last name. And my kid said, who's that? And then we listed their names individually, and she says, oh! And the rest of the day, she couldn't stop saying their last name. They walked in the door, and she said, did you guys know you're this name? I'm not going to say their name. I didn't ask permission. But she said, did you guys know that you're this? And they were like, Yeah. But the point is simply that it's baked in that we are individuals. In the Roman world, you never went by your first name. One of the most uh, influential and, and remembered Roman philosophers and lawyers and um, politicians was Cicero. That was his third name. It was Marcus Trillius Cicero. Every once in a while, you see him called Trillius Cicero and just M first. You did not go by your first name because you were known by the people that made your family. It was a collective culture. So when Jesus says it's going to bring division within your family, he's not just challenging their allegiances. He's challenging their identities. (laughs) He's making the case that, look, you're no longer known by this thing that was supposed to be your best good. Now I am your best good. And these relationships that were supposed to define you, they, they don't anymore compared to me. I think a great one-to-one on this is hopefully healthy marriages now. I have a premarital counseling session later this afternoon. And it's week one, and we're going to talk about the value of biblical marriage. And I'm going to say where we start is understanding that when you get married, your family is now this, even though you want to love your mom, dad more. You don't. This creates new allegiances because now you have a new identity. Jesus is absolutely challenging their identity in a first century world where your identity was your family, your tribe. So he continues. Whoever loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves the son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And then you get into this conversation about worthiness. And it's tricky as we follow Jesus. Because fundamentally, do you know who's worthy of God in this room? None of us. None of us. Not you, not me on my best day, not me if I've prayed all day on my best day. Nobody in this room is worthy of God. You see scriptures time and time again that talk about nobody's worthy of God. John the Baptist, we're going to talk about next week, says, I'm not even fit to tie this dude's shoes. I'm not worthy of Jesus. But at the same time, Jesus says here, you're not worthy of me. And it begs the question, what does it take to be worthy of God? In a culture, in a culture where your identity, where your good was defined as your family, where it was defined as your tribe, where it was defined as your group, what Jesus is saying in this moment is that worthy disciples of me know my worth compared to everything else. There's a story in Matthew 2, it's one of my favorites. You probably know it. It's pretty popular. But he eats with some tax collectors, you know? And I love it because I always had a hard time fitting in in church. Never really fit that mold. And I got told a lot that I didn't belong there growing up. And so I kind of felt like I was Levi a little bit. 
when these tax collectors are sitting and eating with Jesus, worst of the worst, and, and the religious people come by and they say, how can you eat with them? You shouldn't be at the table with them. You're defiling yourself and all of us good Jews by eating with them. And Jesus looks at these Pharisees and he says, you've missed the point. I didn't come for you because you have no need for my worthiness because you think you got it. What it takes to be a worthy disciple is simply to recognize the worth of Jesus because you see what saves you. In a culture that was your family, that's hard to hear. He's not just changing allegiances, he's changing identities. And then it gets a little more personal. He moves on to the individual. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. At this point, crucifixion wasn't something that the Jews really experienced. It was a Roman way to die. Jews had their own way to kill people. And so they wouldn't have imagined this is where Jesus was going. It was very public. It was very shameful. You took your cross and you walked it up to the site of your execution. And as you did, people stopped and they laughed at you and they spit at you and they yelled at you. And it wasn't a fun experience for you in in an honor-shame culture. It wasn't a fun experience for your family in a collective culture. And Jesus says, whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. So what he's doing is saying, your family is not your best good and will not save you. And you know what else won't? You. In an individualistic society, this one hits us right where we feel things. I love that now we, I feel like, live in the greatest expression of individualism the world has ever known. And I know that sounds hyperbolic, but it's not. Do you know why? Because everybody that wants one has their own platform to reach anybody they want. That's amazing. That has never happened before. If you feel like people need to know that you had Wheaties this morning because you're the center of your own universe, you can do that and you can watch people comment on it. It's outstandingly interesting and sad at the same time. Rutgers did a study a few years ago and they talked about this idea of me-formers versus informers on social media. Me-formers were people that shared things that they, quote, have no value at all to anybody else. And then they quoted how many, they said up to 80% of Twitter is me former stuff. Not like the world needs this or I need this. It's more like, hey, this is what I watched last night on TV. We are no better for that information, all right? But if you want to share it, that's great. I'm not knocking Twitter. I'm simply saying it becomes these echo chambers of our own importance. Cause us to buy into the lie that we're more important than we are, that we're bigger than we are, that we can do more than we can actually do. Cause us to buy into the lie that we're more dependent on us than we are on Jesus. And so... Jesus says, whoever does not take up his cross is not worthy of me. I look at all the kinds of people that we have in this world. I look at all the kinds of posts that we have in this world. I look at how I think this world more than ever revolves around the me personality or my brand or my opinion matters or, 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 or. Now, whatever it's gotten us. Because in this country alone, <laughs> depressions are up, suicides up, medication need for health is up. I look and I say, in a, in a culture that centers itself on the individual, on the meanness of my life, is it really, really working? What's worthy of our worship? And so he says, whoever finds life will lose it, and whoever loses his life because of me will find it. And that's a gospel principle that just says, you have to stop seeing you as your own savior to actually find your savior. It's what happens in Matthew 2. It's what happens with the rich young ruler. It's what happens when Jesus talks about the camel and the eye and the needle by saying, hey, it's hard for people that have a lot of means to find Jesus as their means for salvation because we've said it before, it's really, really difficult to know that you need and you have everything you want. And so he says, do you know where life starts? Recognizing that I'm worthy and all the other stuff isn't as worthy. 
worthy disciples know the worth of Jesus <laughs> because they see what saves them. Henry Nouwen, priest and writer, says, death indeed simplifies. Death does not tolerate endless shading and nuances. Death lays bare what really matters and in this way becomes your judge. So Jesus is saying, really in the end, you die to yourself so that you find what really matters in the world. And the principle of God is when you do that and get out of your own way, you find what actually saves you. You find life. Paul says it like this in Romans 1. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first the Jew and then the Gentile. The question we have to ask and answer is, what does it mean to be a worthy disciple? Find and focus on the worth of Jesus. Recognize his role in our world as a definer of our good, as one who cares for us, as one who walks with us, as one who leads us to life. So as I've been thinking about it this week, the Elder Board, we read books every once in a while just to brag to our friends. And <coughs> we read a book a couple of years ago by a woman named Ruth Haley Barton um, called Discerning the Will of God. And, and in this book, there was a really interesting prayer. It's, uh, it's called The Prayer of Indifference. And, and you're going to hear the word indifference and think, why would I pray and not care? That's not what it means. <laughs> a prayer of indifference is simply a prayer that acknowledges that I want to be passionately for all the things God is for and passionately not for all the things God is not for. She says it like this. The prayer of indifference expresses the fact that we have come to a place where, where we want God's will, nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. So as we, as we go from here and we focus on worthy discipleship, I, I think this week, I think this week we, we simply ask the question, What's defining our worthiness and what do we feel like is more worthy than Jesus? Now, one way to say it is, what life am I clinging to more tightly than I should? And, and online, we're going to post uh, a prayer of indifference written by Charles Foucault. He's a Catholic priest that got martyred in the early 20th century. And, and, and my prayer is that you guys go there this week and just every day wake up and pray a prayer of indifference and say, God, I want to be for the things you're for because you're worthy of it. This is how he phrases his prayer. A prayer of abandonment. Father, I abandon myself into your hands. Do with me what you will. Whatever you may do, I thank you. I'm ready for all. I accept all. Let only your will be done in me and in your creatures. I wish no more than this, O Lord. Into your hands I commend my soul. I offer it to you with all the love of my heart, for I love you, Lord and so need to give myself, to surrender myself into your hands without reserve and with boundless confidence for you, my Father. Amen. It's my prayer as we go that we pray that and remember what's truly of worth because we're followers of Jesus. We're disciples. And in the end, what we do when we do that is we point people back to the things that really matter and that are good. And when we, about two minutes from now, take communion, Every time we're reminding ourselves of the worth of Jesus. Every time we're reminding ourselves that, you know why Jesus is worthy? Because he loves me more than anything else loves me. And I want to love the thing the most that loves me the most. <laughs> it's a healthy world to live in. And so we're going to end with communion and we're going to focus on how much God loved you and why that makes him worthy of our love. 
We're going to focus on what we said earlier, which is if we focus on God's love for us, then as our love of God grows, our love for others grow, your family and not your family, your enemies and the people that say they're your enemies. When we focus on communion, what we're doing is espousing the worthiness of Jesus in a world that sometimes overlooks it or asks the question, what do I need to do to be worthy of God? You need to know that you need him. So on the night that Jesus died, he took some bread and he broke it. And he held it up in front of his disciples, these people whom he loved. He said, this is my body and it's broken for you. It's broken for you because you need it. It's broken for you because I love you. It's broken for you because you don't know that you can't save yourself. It's broken for you. Eat. And every time you eat, remember what I did for you. Remember my worthiness to save. And then he took some wine and he held it up and he said this, this is my blood that's shed for you blood that's poured out because I care for you. My blood that's spilled so that yours doesn't have to be my blood that will mean that you can have life if you remember how worthy I am. You can be my disciples. He said, drink. And every time you drink, remember. Let me pray. God, my prayer is that you as a collective whole, we simply remember how worthy you are and that in doing that, people see your goodness. It goes beyond our desires into a deeper faithfulness for you, no matter how we feel or what kind of day we had, that gives us encouragement and hope, that leads us beyond just guilt into grace, that we might see that the majesty of your grace is why we worship you in the first place. So may we be people of indifference towards everything else so that our affection for you grows. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.